Hello, and welcome back to the Chitheads podcast. My guest today is Mirabai Starr. Mirabai is an award-winning author of creative nonfiction and contemporary translations of sacred literature. She taught philosophy and world religions at the University of New Mexico, Taos, for 20 years and now teaches and speaks internationally on contemplative practice and interspiritual dialogue. A certified bereavement counselor, Mirabai helps mourners harness the transformational power of loss. Her latest book, Wild Mercy, Living the Fierce and Tender Wisdom of the Women Mystics, was named one of the best books of 2019 by Spirituality and Practice. Mirabai is on the 2020 Watkins list of the 100 most spiritually influential living people of the world. She lives with her extended family in the mountains of northern New Mexico. So hello, Mirabai. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for inviting me, Jacob. It's lovely to be with you. So I was just, um, we were speaking just before we pressed record, and I was expressing to you how much I enjoyed and have been enjoying reading your book, Wild Mercy, which is just an incredibly beautiful book. As I was saying, I I read a lot of books for this podcast, obviously, um, and I enjoy them all to varying degrees, but there, you know, there are a rare few that are really written with the kind of poetic beauty and just you know, incredible skill of a writer and a poet that you, that you are, that you bring to the writing of your books. And so it was such a pleasure to read. And actually, I haven't quite made it to the, to the end of the book, but I am certainly going to after this. So it's, you know, I just start off the interview by saying that those who are listening, this is highly recommended, a really, really beautiful um, book about embracing the divine feminine from the uh, across all traditions, really, um, you know, from Christianity to Hinduism to Buddhism, and many different expressions of the divine, and so I want to talk a lot about that today about the divine feminine as you explore it in your book. But before we get into that, I would love to hear a little bit about the story of your own kind of sadhana practice um, and kind of career as a writer, and what has led you to this work and to this passion for the divine feminine. Hmm. Where to begin? <laughs> I think like like you probably, Jacob, and so many people who are gathered around this little fire today, um, I think my spiritual yearning began at a really young age, mm-hmm. and, and there were glimpses and flashes and, and fragrances of the numinous, let's say, from... from um, childhood and so that's probably important to to just mention right now and then when i was 14 my first boyfriend died so death death as it is for so many of us became a kind of a big knocking on the door of the heart and of the soul really and um i lived in taos new mexico my family was part of the back to the land movement of the early 1970s and that whole countercultural um, uh, movement that that didn't wasn't so much about sex, drugs, and rock and roll in the cities as much as how are we going to live? How are we going to raise our families? How are we going to create community that's rooted in in the values that um, feel sustainable to us? So, so we ended up in northern New Mexico, in the mountains of New Mexico, and um, living communally and <clears throat> living close to the land and and all of that. Not that there wasn't sex, drugs, and rock and roll involved (laughs) in the communes in those days, Uh, but there were these deeper values, I think, of, of, you know, my parents and and others trying to live in ways that were aligned with with values of, of loving kindness and voluntary simplicity and care for all all beings. Um, We lived close to Lama Foundation, which is where Ram Dass uh, and and his friends created Be Here Now, the iconic book that in many ways did what, what you all at Embodied Philosophy are up to and have been all along, you know, that bringing the Eastern traditions to a Western audience in a fresh, accessible way. And so that was a big influence on my on my adolescence, that, that book and that and the the convergence of Eastern and Western thought. Now, my parents were not only non-religious Jews uh, from New York, but were really anti-organized religion. Mm. 
but I had this uh, right from from the beginning, especially once I I um, started hanging out at Lama Foundation, had this attraction to every single wisdom tradition that I encountered. I never was willing to sign on with one of them to the exclusion of the others, exclusion being the operative word here, because simply because I didn't want to exclude any of them. Yeah, I, I loved it's such a heart response to every wisdom tradition I encountered Hinduism, Buddhism, all the, the different uh, denominations of Buddhism from from Tibetan Buddhism to Zen and, and Theravada and everything in between. Sufism, many different Sufi orders, um, and mystical Judaism, Christian mysticism. And at Lama Foundation, all of these traditions were honored and, and studied and most importantly, practiced. Yeah. So I was exposed to all of these gorgeous rituals and ceremonies and, and texts and chants and Medit, you know, contemplative practices. So, yeah, so that it was the way my consciousness was formed. It, my formation was an interspiritual one. And I moved to Lama on my own when I was 14. Mm. After Philip died, after my boyfriend died, and, and I was having all of these kind of altered states of consciousness, as death can do. I mean, maybe it was just purely trauma, psychological, dissociative kinds of experiences but for me it was translated in my being as spiritual experiences and a, and a real um desire for god even though my parents thought god was a was kind of magical thinking and you know the, the opiate of the masses <laughs> so <laughs> there was some conflict there not not outwardly they they accepted that i had my inclinations and proclivities but internally there was you know how to reconcile my parents atheism social justice orientation with these mystical impulses in myself yeah that's sort of a, it's an interesting context sort of the opposite of my own and perhaps a lot of people who are listening who who you know they they have a kind of they grow up in a sort of environment where the notion of God is contracted around a certain representation from a particular tradition. And then they go through a kind of grieving process when the, that, that representation of the divine dies for them in a certain kind of way. Like for me, that was very much my experience um, growing up in a kind of, um, in a, I've talked about this a lot, but just a, a quite rigid conception of Christianity that had a very, you know, judgmental and sort of opinionated male figure at the helm, <laughs> male God at the helm. And, um, and coming out of that and sort of finding um, uh, the divine, uh, as expressed through esoteric traditions, contemplative paths as just being a much more refreshing perspective. And, and so, you know, how I'm curious that that experience of, of, of not having been shaped by any particular representation of God and, um, and, and how that has informed kind of the way that you remain open to even Christianity as a tradition, because it was never presented to you necessarily as this rigid form, right? Right. In fact, if anything, Christianity was the, was the religion that was suspect in my family, right. you know, it, as early 20th century Jews or mid 20th century Jews, their they were their consciousness was definitely informed by the Holocaust. They were first generation after the Holocaust, and both my parents, well, they both were were already alive yeah. um, during that time. And but in America, and um, and so Christianity was dangerous. That was it's just the air I breathed was Christianity was dangerous, mm. and Jesus language was hokey. So, <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. <laughs> um, and it's true that Christianity was the was the latecomer to my party because yeah. I didn't know anything about Christianity. And there were very few people that were practicing Christians in my childhood or my more interspiritual youth. You know, there was much more of an emphasis in Taos, New Mexico, where I grew up, and Lama Foundation, where I spent so much time on the Eastern traditions, uh, particularly Hinduism and Buddhism, but also the the mystical branch of Islam, Sufism. Yeah. And so Christianity was the one that I that I knew the least about and was had the least attraction to. However, when I was around, um, when I was 20, 
I was studying Spanish literature in Spain. I did one of those semester abroad programs and, and I was um, reading the Spanish poetry and that's when I encountered San Juan de la Cruz, St. John of the Cross. And I just fell in love with him. I already was a follower of Rumi as a spiritual master. It's Mevlana Jalaluddin Rumi, the, the 14th century Persian mystic. And and when I read John of the Cross, he just he was the Rumi of Spain. He just exuded that same mystical, juicy, almost erotic. Okay, not almost erotic kind of love language uh, with relation to God. And I just resonated with it so much and reading it in the original Spanish was very powerful. And so that was my first introduction really to the beauty of Christianity. And through John of the Cross, I encountered uh, Teresa of Avila, Santa Teresa de Avila, and then all the Christian mystics unfolded from there. I became a translator of the Spanish mystics, John of the Cross and Teresa of Avila. And that brought me into deeper and deeper relationship with Christ. And and be, and I began to um, develop relationships with a lot of kind of radical Catholics who were social justice Catholics and also loved the mystics. And that brought together my two worlds in, in many ways. But what was what was missing from this interspiritual um, experience, orientation, devotion, I would even say, and, and early on I developed a very deep devotion to Neem Karoli Baba, Maharaji, um, who many people know as Ram, Ram Das's guru and also Krishna Das's guru. But what started to happen, Jacob, is that I began to see that all of these spiritual traditions that I so deeply loved, and I had incorporated practices for many of them into my daily spiritual life, and even wrote about them and taught them, is that there were so still, even though they seem to be alternatives to the Judeo-Christian traditions, they were still deeply steeped in a masculine paradigm, what we might call patriarchy, although I try to use that word sparingly. And when that began to really dawn on me, that all of these traditions I loved, you know, Hinduism and, the, and um, Bhakti Yoga, the, the Yoga of Devotion, even Advaita Vedanta, which was another uh, path of Hinduism that was deeply resonant for me, um, Sufism and all of the, the flavors of Buddhism, they all were rooted in a masculine paradigm, even at the same time that they were claiming to transcend gender. I mean, like, look at Islam. Allah is is not begotten and does not beget. Allah transcends all such distinctions. And yet, Islamic language and even Sufism is, is rooted in God as he. Um, even God, even the, the whole notion of of a personified deity is is um, limited by this automatic kind of default masculine concept. And so I have been in the last few years trying to reclaim the feminine up, across the spiritual traditions. And that's what brings me to you yeah, or you to me. Exactly. <laughs> Um, uh, I'm glad we're, you know, you very smoothly moved right into this um, topic because that was what I wanted to ask next is really the the distinction, which you're already starting to talk about between the masculine approach and the feminine approach. And so I just want to maybe dive a little bit deeper into that and, and, and ask you to perhaps unpack just a few other features of what the feminine approach is really about and how it contrasts um, with this kind of masculine um, opting for transcendence being one of the characteristics, but yeah, just a little bit more about the the distinction between the masculine and the feminine approach to spirituality. I would love to, and I also want to bookmark a, a, a notion right now, no, an impulse I'm having, which is to hear from you too. Like that's one of the hallmarks of the feminine way is it's relational, it's mm -hmm. conversational, it's it's about our hearts meeting and not me holding forth on my platform. So I'll hold forth for another minute or two. And then I would love to hear some of your reflections. And I know your listeners are familiar with, with your story. And, and yet I would love to hear in relation specifically to this question, mm. how that is for you, Jacob. Mm. 
So, so let's start with what I just said. One of the, one of the qualities of feminine spirituality for me is that it is relational, that we all count, every voice matters, and each one of us brings something to this feast of the human condition and, and the, the human spirit. So um, some people have certain gifts and impulses, like I'm a a person of words, you know, I speak and I write and I teach because language is, is important to me as you've already pointed out, the beauty of language is important to me. And that's more important to me than the, any concepts that might come out of my mouth is, is the beauty of the celebrating the beauty of language as a spiritual, um, portal even you know that's why I think so many people relate to the mystics because their poetry is heart opening it's not just about something Um, so you also mentioned I think one of the most important distinctions between masculine spirituality and feminine spirituality which is the masculine paradigm emphasizes transcendence that this world is somehow an illusion to be from which we need to awaken and spiritual practices are those bells that wake us from the illusion of separation, which is beautiful, but that somehow that whole way of looking at at the universe and reality encourages us to see our body's embodiment and the earth and human relationships as illusory that and, and something to be moved beyond. I mean, Plato... In, in the allegory of the cave, you know, early Greek thought it, uh, asserted that this world is a shadow play and that the wise man is the one who unshackles himself uh, from the, the, the cave of illusion and emerges into the real world, the world of light. And it's a beautiful allegory. And I bought into it hook, line, and sinker myself for many years. <laughs> But what that does is it ends up disparaging embodiment yeah. and bodies and and women and women's bodies are often become the, the problem to, to be solved and to be moved beyond. Sexuality, uh, desire, all of these things are seen as dangerous. And fem- the feminine is rooted in the body, is rooted in relationship, blesses every particle of creation as being the very dwelling place of the divine, that this, that it's all sacred. It's, there is no, no separation between, um, the, you know, the body and soul, which is the classic philosophical distinction, dualistic distinction. And even the non-dualists often Mm -hmm. succumb to this dualistic thinking that unless you see everything as one, you know, you are caught in in illusion. And so non-duality becomes this, uh, this somehow privileged position. And that if you're actually speaking about the divine as divine feminine, you're buying into, a, you know, unnecessary dualistic distinctions. I get that a lot. Um, so having said, oh, and then the last thing I want to say about the masculine feminine thing is that it's in all of us, right? That that we all have, as as Jung and other dudes um, <laughs> point out, <laughs> and women like Marion Woodman, we all have masculine and feminine um, energies in in us, and some of us uh, have more more dominant masculine or feminine qualities. That like we all know of women who are perhaps ordained clergy people in their respective traditions across the the spiritual spectrum, who are very masculinized in the way they teach and the relationships they have with their students, very hierarchical, very patriarchal. And we all know of men, and I feel that with you, Jacob, who have this deep sense of connection to the, the sacred feminine and, and live from that place too. So given, given all that, I'd love to hear your reflections on this and your experience with this. 
Yeah. Um, well, I appreciate what you said about um, the the relationship, and one of the things I wanted to talk to you about the relationship between the um, the devotional and the non dual. Um, I that was like a moment in your book where I was like, thank you. I was so I was so kind of refreshed to read that and it, it reminded me actually of a question that someone asked me very recently we were doing an immersion for the end of our yoga philosophy program and and one of the other faculty members was curious how i thought that um being a kind of devotional practitioner could be held within the um the sort of you know spiritual format of shaiva tantra or shaiva shakta tantra which is kind of the path i practice generally speaking um, and oftentimes sort of the philosophical lens that I that I look through, which is also, as I'm sure you know, um, you know, very conducive to the the way that we're talking about um, uh, um, the divine as being something that kind of transcends the specific kind of incarnations of, of world religion um, or something that is also imbued in all of them, we should say, so that I can avoid using that transcendent uh, term. But um it, you know, and for me, I, you know, I, I think I did have this moment where that felt problematic and, and I sort of thought that, you know, bhakti was sort of a, a sort of lower step on the totem pole. But I've realized actually in my own practice that it, it's at different times. It's like I want to play at different spiritual roles, you know, that I, I remember specifically when I was in India, I felt and because the the expressions of divinity are everywhere, right? The manifestations of divinity are everywhere in the form of, you know, Shiva and and Krishna and forms of the goddess are everywhere. And so it's um, you know, they're on they're on a garage, they're on a, a wall, they're on the ground, you know, they're literally everywhere. So everywhere you look, you see images of the divine. And and so it's like that whole country invites you into this personal relationship. And so I found myself just allow kind of permitting myself to play at being in relationship with God in that way, even though if I was to have a philosophical discussion about what God is, I probably would use more non-dual, you know, notions and, and talk about sort of the ground of being or absolute consciousness from which every of which everything is an expression. But uh, in that moment, of you know being in this country being in this place being on the earth it made god feel so much more intimate to me to to play with the divine in that way and it was really interesting actually i don't talk i've i've talked about this with friends but i've never talked about it on the podcast <laughs> i had a dream where i married shiva <laughs> and Bernadette Peters was singing at the wedding which is probably the gayest <laughs> thing that could possibly happen in a dream but <laughs> Um, and, um, and, you know, but also I, I felt very viscerally that I was marrying Shiva, but also Shiva wasn't there. Like Shiva was, you know, just emptiness, which of course makes sense given kind of the symbolism of, of Shiva and what Shiva represents. So I, you know, I got gay married to God in a dream, which mm -hmm. I thought was very auspicious. And then also one day I, there, I was, I was there the first time I was in India, I was there for, during my birthday and, um, uh, I was by myself. I was traveling by myself for that for, for that first kind of journey to India. And I decided to give my birthday to Shakti. And I sort of, I woke up and I said, you know, today I'm offering my birthday to the Shakti. And, um, and I went to several temples that day. That was all I did. And one of the last temples, which was a Shakti Pete, um, I got there and the Shakti Murti was wearing a birthday hat. <laughs> wow. And it was just like this incredible moment. And I actually, I think I like, you know, prostrated for 10 minutes because I was just so kind of blown over by the auspiciousness of it. And the, you know, the, what was Jung's term for that? Um, uh, synchronicity? Is that what it yes. is? Yeah. yeah. Um, and yeah, so it was really beautiful. So, I mean, for me, uh, like I, I feel like they they live together in the context of, you know, the day-to-day -day playfulness of my own spiritual life. And, and I don't see there being a contradiction anymore um, because that just feels like it would be so limiting to, to deny, you know, uh, the divine's ability to show up for us in these multifarious ways. Um, and, um, 
Yeah, and and that has been like a really that's been a really beautiful thing to kind of discover and to and to experiment with is just the 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 yeah the play between those two uh, kind of understandings. Um, yeah, so that's what sort of emerged for me as you were talking about that. Oh, I love it. I'm so glad to hear it. And that is just common sense, too. Like, that's another aspect of the feminine. Philosophy, whatever. It's, <laughs> it's like what works, what what resonates, what is what is true in in your heart. And, it, you know, rather than limiting yourself to some um, or some prescribed philosophical system, you know, I have a background in in philosophy, I taught taught philosophy at, at community college for many years, and I was trained in that kind of white classical male philosophical tradition, which I rebelled against every step of the way, because it, what is true, is not necessarily what, um, what resonates with a particular system. Mm -hmm. And a lot of religions are logical systems. You know, they do require leaps of faith and and a good degree. Let's just faith, let's just admit it of magical thinking, yeah. but that yeah. they are they are logical systems. And if you pull one card out of that that um what's that called house of cards, then the whole system it can come tumbling down. Which is why we hold on so tight sometimes because deconstruction is scary. Like you talked about it with your your Christian upbringing there, and many people experience this, many people who are listening have been through that deconstruction phase, as Richard Rohr calls, well, he calls it order, disorder, and then reorder. Yeah. And disorder phase is kind of, it can be really scary, because it's like if you question anything, then the whole thing is, is um, can come tumbling down. So, but the feminine says, look, I like you, Jacob, you know, sometimes my heart is touched or I feel this playful urge to relate to the great mystery, to the ground of being, to ultimate reality as Krishna, as Shiva, as the, as the mother, as Ma, and um, as lover, beloved mother, what, whatever it may be, that intimacy is, is a way to transcend the intimacy. I guess the feminine for me is rooted in paradox and ambiguity as good things. <laughs> it's like paradox is not a problem. It's yeah. it's an expression of reality. Ambiguity is the mystery. It's the it's the dark. It's the dark feminine. It's the space where we actually flourish. Yeah. And so yeah. all of these things can be true at once. You know, I do a lot of work with bereaved people um and i have you know what i've noticed and what i try to affirm for for grieving people is that many things can be true at the same time and when your heart is shattered by loss that's even more the case that you can hold seemingly contradictory propositions like for instance this sucks i hate it my child is dead what and I am suddenly glimpsing the perfect architecture of the cosmos and see how she lived exactly as long as she was meant to live and what and and how she is available to me now in this new way beyond her body is also perfect and I hate this and I want my child back you know all of it is true at the same time or my lover left me this is terrible I um, no one's ever going to love me again and I now have this relationship with myself that I could never have dreamed about when I was in that relationship where I wasn't seen and valued. So all of these things are true at the same time. Mm -hmm. The devotional impulse and the non-dual understanding. And they also, they, they um, use the word play. There's this kind of love play between non-duality and devotion, at least in my life, where when I am doing a devotional practice, say chanting, which I love, sacred music of any kind in all traditions is, is deeply important to me. So I will be chanting, say I'll be doing kirtan. Um, and I'm, I'm deep in the, in the warmth of that, of that devotional practice. 
And eventually that warmth of the practice, that love, melts the boundaries of my heart. And for a few blessed moments, I am not a separate self anymore. I experience, it's not a philosophical notion, I experience my felt connection with all that is. That, that as it says in the Upanishads, thou art that. Yeah. And it's not just a notion now, it's an experience of becoming that which I love. And then having experienced those non-dual states or those unitive states of consciousness, which are more than consciousness, they're, they're of the heart, states of the heart, then there's that impulse to praise all over again. Mm -hmm. And so they, they, they feed each other. They come, the, the devotion leads to the non-dual experience. The non-dual experience um, is the catalyst for a devotional response. That to me is the feminine way. There's no, they don't need to be separate, uh, separate realities where one is true and the other is illusion. Yeah, that also seems, you know, one of the things that I was thinking about when you were, when you asked me kind of what I thought about the feminine is, is that it's the way that you describe it, it seems very aligned with kind of a queering of spirituality in a certain way. And and by that, I mean, we're getting ready to publish this issue on queer dharma in a couple months. And um, so I've been thinking about this and I want to write an article about how God is queer. <laughs> and, um, right. <clears throat> and by that, I mean non-binary, right? That ultimately, that the, even the, fi the feminine as you're in kind of invoking it also is sort of the source of the dissolution of these strict categories and and we could say that even the the idea that there is this kind of hard separation between masculine and feminine is the result of a patriarchal kind of blueprint yes, yes. and so you know to 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 invoke the feminine this way is actually to kind of dissolve these categories and to um to embrace the binary but also the non-binary and and so you know uh, and 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 then coming back to the devotional is really about the the you know because a part of also the queering of identity is to recognize that like our identity cannot be consolidated into sort of one solitary expression and so it sort of liberates us to play in a variety of different identity formations in a variety of different relationships and so that you know i feel like that kind of um map of things then puts the experience of devotional practice in another, um, it situates, situates it in a certain kind of way where you can see sort of the spiritual value of, of, you know, sort of relocating yourself so that your view of the divine is slightly different. I mean, that was what Ramakrishna was really all about, right? Because he was, mm -hmm. he was, um, you know, he dressed in drag so that he could, you know, embrace Krishna as a woman, you know, like it was just this incredible, um, uh, kind of subverting of 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 these contracted forms of identity, which are really, as so many of the traditions say, um, the obstacle to illumination. I love that so much, Jacob. This is so beautiful, and you've just given me something, a piece that I think I needed in my whole way of trying to convey what I mean by feminine qualities. Mm. It's really non-binary qualities that I'm speaking of, what you call the queering of the Dharma or the queering of the divine, I think that's really what I'm after. Mm -hmm. It Because it's exactly as you said, what I'm interested in is dissolving those, um, those distinctions that bind us and trap us and keep us from a direct and loving relationship with, with reality, with yeah. the divine. So I can't wait to hear more about how you, I'd love to see what you write about this. It's yeah, absolutely. I'd love to share with you, get your thoughts. Um, so one of the things I wanted to ask, I'm just curious about what you think about this, because one of the things that comes up sometimes in conversations is that there's this, there's a newer, um, oh, I don't know if it's new, but there's what we call, like, we could call the kind of talking schools and then the sort of practice schools or, 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 or the, the schools that and I'm not naming any in particular, um, but schools that sort of think that it is sufficient to simply kind of postulate the the non-duality or the oneness of everything. 
and um, and that is sort of enough, right? That as long I know intellectually that I am one with everything, and therefore that essentially acts as um, uh, affirmation of everything, including anything that I want to do from here on out. Whereas I think the other another side of this would be that there, you know, that it, that we need more. We need practice. We need sadhana in a certain kind of way to to dissolve whatever limitations are inhibiting us from accessing that mode of perception. So I'm curious what, um, because I guess in in inviting in every spiritual tradition's um, perspective and practice, we might have that, we could potentially fall into that pattern of, you know, digging too many holes to China. Do you know what I mean? You know that expression? I'm Whereas, sure you know, one I've of the arguments for sticking with, what's that? I've written about it. Oh, great. A lot. Yeah. So then you have something to say about this, I guess. <laughs> I sure do. Um, not, not that I know the answer, but and in fact, I think it was Ramakrishna who said trying to get to God um, through all, all practicing many different religions is like trying to get to water by digging many shallow wells. Yes. And I love Ramakrishna with all my heart, but it's like I really wish he hadn't said that. <laughs> because um, there is this, I think, very patriarchal message, not that he was necessarily giving but that people who have taken that on say um which is that if you have a heart like mine and like many of you who are listening which i would call an interspiritual heart like this is just your constitution you know this yeah. that's the beautiful thing about hinduism is it affirms that different people have different temperaments yeah. my temperament is obviously interspiritual it's always been that way and every time i've tried to pick one tradition and quote, go deep, I feel trapped and I feel like I'm violating covenant with my beloved by putting my beloved in a box is, is how, how it actually viscerally feels in my body. And so, um, so, okay, so I'm, I have an interspiritual heart and that's, that's the way that is. That does not preclude depth. So I had to like wrestle with that messaging that I, started receiving at a young age, even at Lama Foundation, where many different spiritual practices and paths were honored. Um, usually there were people who represented one particular tradition there, and all of us lived together, and all of us practiced together and shared what we loved about our traditions. But there were always people who were adherents to their particular spiritual traditions who would take me aside as a young girl and say, it's great that you're doing some Sufism here and some Buddhist, Buddhist practice there, but you know, you need to pick one. Doesn't have to be mine, but I, you really eventually a mature spiritual life wow. will involve picking one. And so I always felt like a failure and that I was somehow superficial. I was a dilettante. I was a spiritual dilettante dabbling in this and dabbling in that because of my unwillingness to commit and go deep. And it was only in my adulthood that I really began to come to grips with the fact that I had been having deep, powerful, transformational spiritual experiences all along in multiple spiritual spaces. You know, when I would do zikr in the Sufi tradition, my heart would fly open and Allah was the was the heart itself was the was the very embodiment of the spiritual heart into which I melted. And then the next day I would be, you know, reading some ancient Tibetan text and chanting Om Mani Padme Hum, and it would happen all over again there. And these were not superficial, feel-good, convenient experiences. They were they were transformational experiences. They changed me. They were risky. They were subversive. They were they required everything of me, and I surrendered in those in those spaces. So, do you see what I mean? So, yeah. it I finally was able to unpack that messaging about many shallow wells that it was not true. <laughs> it was not true for me. Maybe it was for some people, but for it was not true for me, and it was not true for many of the people that I know and that, that were coming to me saying, how do you navigate multiple spiritual paths? The truth is that I do, my sadhana does involve probably four or five different spiritual traditions on more or less a daily basis. And then seasonally, like right now in the Jewish tradition, um, we're entering into the period of the high holy days and that becomes all-consuming for me. I am completely 
dedicated, at least in those 10 days, the so-called days of awe between Rosh Hashanah, the new year, and Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, those 10 days of awe become a container in which I, my soul is completely um, reorganized, recalibrated, and turned inside out. And it's scary, and it's hard, and it's beautiful. And that I bow at the, at the feet of my ancestral tradition of Judaism for offering such a powerful um, container for spiritual transformation. I have a relationship with Neem Karoli Baba. Every day of my life, that devotion is alive in me. His picture is everywhere. Um, and, and so on. So the point is that... Um, is that it's all alive and it's all simultaneously true. And all of those traditions marginalize the feminine. Mm. Mm -hmm. And it requires a lot of work to excavate the very intentionally buried voices of women and feminine wisdom teachings across those spiritual traditions and lifting them back up. You know, when I wrote Wild Mercy, it was a chore. It was, it was a lot of hard work to find. There, It's there, but it's definitely um, the feminine feminine wisdom is, is buried on purpose. Yeah. Wow, that was a really beautiful, like, I'm really glad I asked you that because I feel like that was a really beautiful way of, of, speaking to the other side of this um, kind of, you know, issue, if you want to call it that, that comes up a lot with the, and what I kind of hear you saying, I was sort of having um, this thing come to mind of just that there is an interspiritual well that go, that runs very deep, you know, um, yeah. that is, uh, that is, is, is just as sort of, you know, significant and fruitful. And also you mentioning that to affirm the significance or importance of that is also to affirm the you know a particular temper temperament that a lot of people share and and a lot of people who you know can't find can't feel at home in the sort of you know kind of confines of one particular expression so yeah it's beautiful to kind of affirm that um i wanted to ask you you know you bring up cultural appropriation in your book and it seems, you know, this is obviously a hot topic right now and there's lots of different, I feel like there's a lot of misunderstandings of what it really is. And then there's lots, you know, and then there's some really, you know, kind of important perspectives on the whole thing. One of which you talk about in your book about kind of respecting the the source of traditions. But I, as you were describing the interspiritual path, it seems like one of the, the ways that cultural appropriation is sometimes unpacked and defended is to sort of suggest that one can't be an interspiritual practitioner that actually it isn't uh, and i feel i resonate with a lot of what you're saying too i i take a lot of inspiration from different traditions even though i practice one kind of school of meditation but i don't negate any of the others um but it seems like you know there is this idea that as sort of white people we are not allowed to or as a person of a particular kind of cultural position one is not permitted to practice uh, something that comes from another tradition. And so that to me, and I imagine you feel the same way, it represents kind of a uh, a sort of misunderstanding of the stakes behind this issue. Um, uh, so I'm just curious what you think about that and, and how that's that question, I imagine, has come up for you in your own work and in your own kind of relationship with your practice and, and the teachings themselves. Oh, my God. <laughs> this is so up for me right now. So I've been speaking and teaching and writing about interspirituality for, you know, not that long, maybe 15 years, I would say. Maybe whenever God of Love came out, that was uh, 2005 or something. And, um, you know, really speaking to the people like like me who have the, that interspiritual inclination. And by the way, I, I have to say that, that at the same time that I affirm my own interspiritual nature and yours, whoever's, I also deeply grateful to the people that I call the keepers of the jewels. Yeah. yeah. The ones who are deeply rooted in a particular tradition. And, and I, and I am so grateful that they are keeping and safeguarding yeah. what is most yeah. beautiful and life giving and transformational in their own tradition. Um, now I have had to really grapple 
with interspirituality and cultural appropriation and take responsibility as a teacher and a writer for blithely encouraging people to help themselves to the spiritual treasures of other cultures. Like, yes, you have an interspiritual soul. You have a right. In fact, you, you know, this is your birthright. I've even used that word. So help yourself to a little Kali here from Hinduism and some, you know, some Allah there from, from Islam and have your Buddhist meditation practice that is rooted in, you know, these different cultures of, of Tibet and Nepal and India. And um, as long as it resonates for you, nobody can tell you not to. So I'm really reckoning with that right now, Jacob. I I mean, I see what you're saying, that it that the accusation of cultural appropriation doesn't take into account some of the um, what's what we're really up to. Those of us who find our spiritual home in these other traditions that are connected to other cultures. Yeah. And I've had to just as I am with white privilege and and white supremacy I am having to take a really hard look at myself and take responsibility for the ways that I have encouraged other people to engage in cultural appropriation without recognizing that that's what I was up to. So, yeah, I'm just nakedly saying that I'm still working with with that. And I'm so grateful that you brought it up. If you hadn't, I would have, because I can't speak about interspirituality without reckoning with that being one of the aspects of white privilege. Like I have the, I'm entitled to, to just take what I, what I want from other, from marginalized and colonized. That's the most important, you know, colonized populations. So how do we do this with respect? with true recognition of the resonance in our souls. India for me also is a place of deep resonance. You know, I, I feel um, like I, re- I learn a bhajan, you know, and I, and I'll learn it right away. I just, re- it's almost like I remember it, you know, Indian clothes are what I mostly wear because it's the, the beauty of, of, Indian aesthetics resonates so much with me. We, I cook Indian food. It's just, but, what about that is respectful and loving and where does it careen over a line that I'm unaware of by virtue of being white um, where it's where it is appropriating um, and make and, and even more dangerously making a living you know or earning my money from using other people's, from stealing other people's culture. So I've had to really look at all that. And I'd love, um, in the few minutes we have left, I'd love some of your reflections on that because I'm working with that right now. Oh yeah, I mean, I I think there's so many layers to it and, um, and I certainly feel the same as you that it's something that I think we just have, it has to be one of those constant like lenses and something that you're grappling with. um, you know, I, it's like on the, on the, on the one hand, I think that what a lot of people have been resistant to is, is the way in which it gets kind of appropriated and, and, and taken on as a sort of fashion, right? So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm wearing a mala, I'm, I'm dressing up in sort of, you know, Indian clothes, not necessarily because of like an extension of my, of the truth of my spiritual practice, but really as a kind of way of broadcasting how spiritually alive I am. You know, I think that's been happening up until very recently. It's actually happening less now because it's so, um, you know, people have reacted to it so strongly. And now there's a kind of been quite a bit of a a reversal. But I, I feel like, you know, going back, it's interesting about the when you were just talking about being sort of, you know, fearing that you were a spiritual dilettante and, you know, what the way in which you have um, encountered different traditions, I feel like, and the, and the way that you talk about it in the book has really been, um, has been in the service of dissolving your own kind of 
egoic contractions in a way that opens you up to the manifold diversity of the divine. However, I think the the salad bar spirituality, if we can call it that, that might be might be a negative expression of cultural appropriation or a, a not so good expression of cultural appropriation is is when the spiritual practices and traditions are really just kind of taken on as jewelry or as um, as garments, as it were, like really um, as things that are essentially emboldening or bolstering my own ego rather than actually um, permitting me access to the trajectory of spiritual insight, right? So it becomes more about like, the way it makes me look to the world rather and 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 therefore kind of consolidating my identity rather than being a source of dissolving my perspectives of my own identity in the service of realizing the capital i identity right um or my my or a deepening of my relationship with the divine so i mean that and there's so much more to it obviously than than that but when i when i when i think you know in especially with yoga philosophy you know we have this yoga philosophy program and and we're trying so hard in the program to reverse the um a kind of uh, ha- uh what uh, the direction of misunderstanding that so many yoga teacher trainings we're trying to actually educate yoga philosophy teachers to go back into their communities and teach yoga philosophy in a way that respects the integrity of the traditions and honors what they were actually intending to say and intending to impart rather than what is often done in the context of yoga teacher trainings, which is like, okay, let's read the yoga sutras in terms of what is comfortable for us. And then anything that doesn't fit, we just ignore. And that to me is, you know, is really an example of where we are distorting the intentions of, you know, the yoga tradition to kind of, you know, b- bolster our own kind of new age conceptions of everything. So beautifully kind of- said, beautifully said. So, so using whatever spiritual traditions that we happen to be connecting with as ornaments to make ourselves look good, feel good, out of con- you know convenience and comfort, rather than engaging them as technologies for transformation, which often requires being very uncomfortable and coming undone and taking risks. And yeah, I think that that's, um, that we do that every time we speak about privilege where we're will, it's, it's the difference between performative activism and true willingness to be transformed and be an instrument of transformation of society. Like to dismantle structural racism means we have to dismantle it in ourselves first and then really show up and take risks and be uncomfortable and be messy and look like an idiot and all the things that white people are afraid of often in, in these kinds of spaces, you know, that we have to, we have to not do it. We have to be willing to not do it right and make mistakes. To not look good, to, and it's performative activism does nobody any good. In fact, it's 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 counterproductive. If but when we are really willing to put ourselves on the line for for the well being of all beings, then that's you know that's when we are really showing up for our prophetic task in this in this world. So I think it's the same with with spirituality. It's performative versus transformative, maybe and. That's what you're getting at here and saying so beautifully. I hope you write more because you are really good. Oh, thank very, you. Thank very you. wise. Thanks so much. I appreciate that affirmation, especially as I sit, I, I, I'm trying, I'm working on developing a writing project actually on queer spirituality right now. So I, I take your affirmation as, as fuel. <laughs> <laughs> Not that you need it from me, but I'm happy to give it. Thank you so much. Um, so I want to talk before we're getting kind of towards the end. I've had so many things I wanted to talk to you about, but I guess we'll just have to save it for, for next time. And uh, this has been such a delight. And I really appreciate you. I actually tend to um, kind of avoid talking about myself because I think one of the reasons why people say I'm a good interviewer is because I usually try to deflect from myself by asking lots of questions. <laughs> so um, it's I'm glad that you're actually enacting what you 
are talking about in the book as, you know, with conversation and community um, and really kind of pushed me to talk about some of these things and asked me questions um, because it really shows that, you know, you're really practicing what you're preaching here in in this beautiful book that you wrote. Um, But before we finish, and especially as we're about to also publish an, an issue of Tarka, which is our journal, in fact, perhaps you could contribute something to it. We're doing one on death. And of course, death is so um, in, in, obviously central to all of the contemplative paths, um, arguably. Um, and you know, you you've talked about, you've sort of mentioned, and you talk about in the book how you lost your daughter at age fourteen, uh, when she was fourteen. Um, and you know, there is perhaps no greater grief than losing a child. Um, so, and, but you tie interestingly in the book, you tie the experience of grief to longing, which then kind of is, you said you talk about how close they are. And, and, and so I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about that, especially, especially kind of with the idea that perhaps there are those who are listening who have endured profound grief from the loss of a loved one and are having a difficulty figuring out how to see the kind of the sort of divine thread in that or, or are looking for ways that they can actually transmute that experience of extreme pain and grief into something that would be, you know, that, that, um, that might be in some sense, um, opening themselves up to the divine in a certain kind of way. Mm. In the last five minutes. Okay. Go, (laughs) (laughs) Um, you, yes, I do speak and write a lot about, about death and about the connection between grief and longing for God. So, um, not to try to get people to buy my books, because believe me, I make pennies on each book, but I write about it in Caravan of No Despair, which is my memoir, a memoir of loss and transformation. And also I do write about it in this latest book, Wild Mercy, quite a bit. So um, if that's something you want to go deeper into anybody, the, the, they are there and as well as many blogs. Okay. So if I were to distill it, and I'm really in it right now because yesterday was my daughter's birthday and she would have been 33. So I'm deeply connected to her and to her life and death in this very moment as we speak. What What I have noticed in myself and others who experience profound shattering losses is that when we allow ourselves to just surrender and show up for the experience rather than try to explain it away with various spiritual concepts and even practices, which we could call spiritual bypassing or other kinds of substances that we could use to check out of the experience. We can think of many. Um, When we actually just give up, (laughs) say, okay, I am just going to be with this, this on my mantra when Jenny died is this is just unbearable suffering. I mean, with a little kind of wry chuckle, you know, gallows humor, it's just unbearable suffering. Like I cannot deal with this. I cannot bear this. And here I am. My, impulse as a mother was to be present to the loss as an act of love and devotion to my child. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to turn away from this, Jenny. I am not going to turn away from this experience. I am going to honor you by being present with my shattering, with the impossible pain of losing you as an act of love. Like I'm going to stay right here. So that's what got me to do it, not some kind of spiritual flexing of my muscles, you know, like I can I can endure this. I have enough spiritual practice under my belt that I can I can do this and not turn away from this fire. It was it was the opposite of of proving something. It was surrender. It was surrender in love. But what I noticed is that in the fire of grief, there was this sense of yearning, of burning yearning. That was very much like the early experiences on my spiritual path of longing for God. That somehow my grief for my child, and I've had many deaths in my life, many significant deaths. That was the, that one was in a universe of its own, but I was familiar with loss for sure. But that that, that they inhabited the experience of grief. Um, a similar territory or terrain in my heart as my love longing for God always had, for God who I no longer believed in intellectually, you know, as a personified dude. 
this this yearning for for union was it was the same kind of space in my being and so in many ways i had covered over my my adolescent love longing my mirabai you know mirabai I was given that name by Ramdas when I was 15 because um, I was in a play where I, I I was I played Mirabai in a school musical. That's the kind of school I had. And um, <laughs> Mirabai was devoted to Krishna, you know, love with Krishna, longing for Krishna. And so death and loss has reconnected me with that initial, very pure longing for union with God. And so I paid attention to that. I noticed it and I showed up for it, not as a, um, des- not with a desire to cure it. Like this love longing wasn't a malady that could be fixed with the right spiritual medicine, but rather was a sacred space in itself that invited me to enter. And so grief and loss has been that portal for me into that sacred space of love longing, again, not as a, a problem to be solved or a, or a pathology to be cured, but as a sacred reality to be sat with, hmm. to be bowed at the altar of. <laughs> That's about all I can say in, a, in just a few minutes about something that is, is um, so really yeah. part of the es- essence of my life's work. Yeah. Do you think, is, is this longing something that, I, I, you know, on one level it seems like this longing is, is absolutely fundamental and it also gets manipulated by things like, you know, social structures like capitalism that say, you know, you can resolve this longing with this thing or this thing or this thing. Or, or you know, and sometimes I talk about this, that it seems like in, in our culture we have replaced, you know, in our secular culture, of course, there are many of us who are not, uh, who are, are, have different conceptions of divinity and, and relationships with God in various ways. But um, in the secular expression of our culture, it seems like, and I'm wondering if you agree with this, that that we're trying to close the experience of longing with romantic relationships in various ways or or relationships in general, That that there's this kind of impulse to stop the longing um, and rather than to kind of relax into it or surrender into it. Um, so I'm just curious. These are just kind of thoughts that are coming to me. I'm curious if that resonates with you at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I write a lot, a lot about that in the chapter on love and sexuality in the book. Um, yes, so the it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, Jacob, that that when we, when we are being spiritual dilettantes, using the, the different spiritual goodies to to make ourselves feel good and comfortable and bolster our ego identity rather than to dismantle them which is what they were designed for it's the same thing with longing when we can show up for that longing and sit with it and be with it then transformation can happen then alchemy can happen of course the paradox is that we can't do it so that we will be transformed right we do it, it is surrender we have no we have no attachment to the outcome as krishna says in the bhagavad gita we do it without attachment to the fruits of our of our actions we show up without any expectation dark john of the cross calls it the dark night of the soul that fruitful holy space of radical unknowing it turns out that when we do allow ourselves to sit in the fire of longing, alchemy happens. You know, transformation unfolds. Um, but we can't make a deal for that. And and so how does that relate to romantic relationships? Well, in my case, it took me a long time and a couple of marriages to get there. But what I have noticed is that being in a solid, loving, healthy relationship, which I am in, frees me to have a fiery, intense uh, love relationship with the divine. It's like I'm rooted and safe Mm. in the garden of my marriage. And from that place of security, I can fly into the arms of the beloved. And my husband in my case is not 
threatened by that. He loves that about me. But it, but it took me several decades of foisting that love longing onto potential romantic partners, <laughs> and it did not go well before I was able to cultivate that direct, intimate relationship and at the same time um, tend a garden of marriage that became the the yeah the sanctuary the refuge from which i could engage in a radical dangerous risky transformational love relationship with the with the divine mm. wow so beautifully said Thank you. i'm still looking for that garden <laughs> yes honey may may you find it may you find each other yeah i i, I hold out some hope for that at some point along the way um, so this has been absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much, Mirabai, for sharing your time and your wisdom and your beautiful writing. I mean, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about, but we can talk about next time, is the role of creativity in spiritual life. And you obviously are just a walking, you know, embodiment of that. Um, and and it's just it's really incredible to read your words. And as I said at the beginning, for everyone who's listening, this is, uh, you know, a big high recommendation. Um, Wild Mercy, uh, which is Mirabai's latest book, it really is just, it will be, it will uplift you and inspire you and nourish you in, in so many ways. So get your copy today. <laughs> uh, Mirabai, would you like to share anything as we close about what's coming up for you in terms of maybe workshop or course you're doing, anything you'd like to share with the uh, listeners? Oh my gosh, there's so many things, you know, it's, those are the times right now, a lot of online offerings. So yeah. I would love to see any of you in any of these spaces where I am. Um, and I, if you wouldn't mind, just go to my website, just, or just Google my name and you'll find it Mirabai Star with two R's. Um, it's mirabystar.com. And there are a lot of events coming up that I'm really excited about. I'm doing a writing, an online writing workshop, writing your story of loss and transformation, mm. um, teaching a, a, a unit on death and dying at Sand Science and Non-Duality Conference, um, doing a five-week course through the Rose Center on subversive women. I think I'm calling it Holy Troublemakers. Yes. And so lots of, lots of different things coming up. Amazing. Yes. And that's mirabystar.com. And then there's an events page forward slash events. Um, yeah, that the, the October course, I'm looking at something here now online series you're doing called Holy Trouble Revolutionary Women Across the Spiritual Traditions. Um, so that certainly sounds like um, an amazing experience. So check that out. Um, thank you so much, Mirabai. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yes. Well, you are a wise and beautiful being, Jacob. It was a joy to speak with you and Take care, everybody. <laughs>